Hello, folks. This is your host, Tammy Turner, and you are now listening to the Tierra Talk Show. We bring you rare interviews with the makers of Disney magic. Whether they be singers, actors, imagineers, animators, they've all made their mark on the Disney name. To find out more about the show and other episodes, head to our official website at www.thetierratalkshow.com. Be sure to look below at the show notes in the show more section for links to our Twitter and Facebook pages, including videos and websites mentioned in the following interview. Photos and audio clips that are featured in the show belong to their rightful owners and are used for educational purposes only. All guests' opinions are theirs and theirs alone and do not represent the opinions of the Tierra Talk Show or the host. The Tierra Talk Show is not associated with the Disney Company. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's episode. And from all of us here at the Tierra Talk Show, have a hoop-de-doo day. Hello, listeners. This week marks the anniversary of our first episode of the Tierra Talk Show that premiered on August 3rd, 2013. And I'm excited to be joined this week on the show by the guest who was on the first episode of the Tierra Talk Show. Director- who would that be? Oh, it's, it's director and writer Jerry Reese. Hello, Jerry. <laughs> Hi, Tammy. How are you? Doing wonderful. And, and it's been a year since we chatted about Back to Neverland, which was a short film you directed starring Robin Williams and Walter Cronkite in 19. 19- 89. And for new listeners, the link to that interview is in the description below. Definitely check it out. I love listening to it. (laughs) And since our interview, we've had the chance to meet up at the 2013 D23 Expo 2, which was a lot of fun. So I'm so glad I got to finally meet you after that. (laughs) Yeah. So tonight we're going to talk about the project you got to work on, Epcot 1989, called Cranium Command. Can you give our listeners a brief synopsis about that attraction? Well, a cranium command poses a very interesting question, and that is, how do you command your own cranium? How do you keep your head when there's so many pressures going on around you, but not only around you, inside of you? Because you've got logic versus emotion. If your adrenal glands send you a fight-or-flight message, which do you choose? So at any given time, you have to pilot your way through all these different choices that are happening even inside of your own body. So... The Cranium Command Theater let you explore all these things in a very fun way because you would step inside what seemed to be the interior of a head. And there were two eye screens. And as the eyes opened, you were seeing through the eyes of a 12-year-old boy whose head you were riding along with. And um, in other screens, you saw Charles Grodin playing left brain, uh, John Lovitz playing right brain. You got Dana Carvey and Kevin Nealon playing right-left ventricles of the heart. Bobcat Goldthwait was the adrenal glands. Very good casting there. Um, George Wendt played appetite. So all these different parts of the body would react to what was going on in the child's day. So as you were seeing things through the eyes, all of these different parts of the body would argue about what to do about any given situation. And then the most important character of all was the pilot who had to decide who had the right opinion in these situations. And that was Buzzy, who was an audio-animatronic figure that was in the room with you inside the theater. And he had the task of trying to pilot his way through situations, seeing out through those eyes, seeing a situation develop. The tension would arise, and different parts of the body would have radically different opinions about what to do. And little Buzzy, the pilot, had to decide what to do. Would he pick one of their opinions or one of his own? And he would decide and go forward. And sometimes his decisions were great. Sometimes his decisions were terrible. And when he really screwed up, 
general knowledge would show up to uh, give him a, a good uh, tongue lashing. <laughs> and general knowledge was, uh, was portrayed beautifully by Corey Burton. And um, so in this manner, you went through a day in the life of this 12-year-old boy, and you got to have an idea about how your consciousness actually solves these internal conflicts that you have and makes decisions through the day. And ultimately, what you're trying to do is be a good pilot, be a, have a good consciousness, and uh, govern your own body well, and you could become a graduate of the Cranium Command. And, by the way, that theater was also equipped with wonderful extras so that we had... Um, 10-point discrete sound so that as you were rushing through this day, we could wrap sound around you in any direction to make you feel like you were really inside of it. And when pressure's built up and the heart's pumping and the adrenal glands were flowing, we would have steam that could actually fly out of the screen over your heads in the theater. So it made you feel very immersed in the whole experience. And little Buzzy, as he was piloting, looking out through those eyes and trying to, to decide you know, where to go, uh, trying to settle disputes among the various body parts, was on um, the end of a, a pendulum that was a, a, a sort of a long arm that came out very near the audience's heads. Uh, so he, he would swing back and forth from the right to the left of the theater, sort of swinging in response to the motion that was happening out through those eyes. So when the boy would take a right turn, he'd swing to the left, and it really seemed like you were all riding along inside of his head. So instead of feeling like you were in a theater, you felt more like you were on a ride that was moving around as, as the boy moved around. So it was, it was quite an immersive thing, and it made the whole um, sort of exploration of how we make decisions, how we make good decisions, and how we deal with pressure during any given day, um, a very sort of entertaining thing. When you're a 12-year-old boy going to school and falling in love and exploding science experiments and all that good stuff and getting sent to the principal's office. so um, That's a lot of fun. <laughs> so, yes, it took a, 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 a fun message, educational message about dealing with stress and wrapped it in a lot of fun and a big adventure and, and a one-of-a-kind uh, theater. So it was a real treat. Before you get a chance to talk about the attraction, I have a little surprise for you, and they're waiting on the other line to chat. Drum roll. So our special guest on the other line is Gary Drowsdale. Hey, Gary. Great to hear you. Hi, Jerry. Surprise. (laughs) Wonderful. (laughs) So, Jerry, you were a director on this project, as well as Gary. Gary, uh, you directed the animated segment in Cranium Command, correct? With Kirk Wise, yes. Now, how long did it take to animate that beginning sequence with General Knowledge and Buzzy? Um, I think we had 90 days. Whoa. I think that, I think that was our, our schedule. Um, when, when Kirk and I got put on that, it was, um, there were a lot of things that, that were like, just like flying around like crazy, and <laughs> except for the deadline. And, and, and that, was, yes. that was like stone. Yes, and remember that uh, we had you drawing in the fishbowl. In the yes. uh, animation tour. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Listening, li- listening to Robin Williams and Walter Cronkite right. like every two and a half minutes. <laughs> well, it's, it, it was so uh, amazing. I, I talked to somebody recently who was a fan of Back to Neverland. And I, I asked them if they had ever taken videos or photographs in that area during the opening few months. And they said yes. So I, I told them to go back and look through their pictures and videos and please share them with us because if they shot anything in that first window of the story department, um, it was our Cranium Command team uh, working away on storyboards for that show 
while wow. I was I was juggling that with you guys while I was over with the Indiana we Jones doing the stuff, live show. Yeah, so, the live show. So we all lived down there together, and you guys were in the fishbowl, and and I I loved the interaction that you guys developed with the crowd, and remember that that you you know you got your work done, but you guys would uh, would see you know when kids would take special notice. Sometimes uh, you guys would go out to talk to the parents and the kid and tell them like, yes, you could do this someday, and hang in there, and it, it was just so cool to have those little uh, little side trips occasionally to connect with the. That's public. that's not even counting just through the glass, like shooting rubber bands at the glass. And, yeah. <laughs> Or putting a putting a slot up to say you know feed the animators put a your <laughs> right right. <laughs> it's really funny because Gary, you make a special appearance in Cranium Command as one of the human heads that is viewed in the first sequence before they're placed on the human body and operated by Cranium Command. And I thought that was because uh, I was oh, just we, watching we all it again. we all do. Oh, so we all yeah. do. Jerry's in there as well. Kirk yeah. is in there. Jerry's in there. They, they, those, all of those heads were the crew because the um, uh, the nature of this of this short. Because it was, uh, you know, for a ride, it was like a pre-show. Um, there were no credits to it, so we figured that will be our credits. Right. So that's, I didn't even. So see if it. you can recognize people, that's that's who worked on it. Right. And then, uh, and then I also snuck Kirk's voice in as the hypothalamus. Uh, He's a hypothalamus. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and it, when it was so funny, because at the at the end, because because we sort of weren't officially allowed to do that. To do uh, you know crew voices in it, but but man, he was just so perfect for that. So uh, I, I waited until the final mix, and we were we went through a, a show with the crowd, and Peter Schneider was sitting next to me. And as we started to go out, I uh, just said, "Oh, we recognize that voice." And hypothalamus going, "Don't forget your belongings," and going through his whole spiel. And right, said, right. That, does that sound familiar to you? And, and Peter goes, "You." <laughs> <laughs> he did. Yeah, and he, he got it. Like, and then he was like, "Okay, it was perfect. You're right." But he, but he, but you know, I had to get away with it because they they never would have officially approved it. But they loved it once it was in. They thought Kirk. Was yeah, good. yeah. It's a great touch. I think Kirk Kirk did a great job with that. Oh, no, yeah. Nobody could have could have done it better. It was the perfect casting. It's a big storage space now, right? I don't know. I, I've heard that that that, uh, that Buzzy's still in there. Everything is set up. I'm not quite sure what's going on with that because they have the food and wine festival there, but just nothing's going on with the pavilion. It's very sad. It was a couple years ago now because I'd gone with, uh, with with my boys a few years back, and the the whole walkway going up to it was kind of cordoned off. They had big like big cement planters with trees like blocking the way up there. There's no way to get in. Right and and so I asked about it, and they said, oh, yeah, it's totally shut down. It's, it's just being used to store, like, parade stuff and, you know, event stuff. So it was, like, the whole pavilion was shut down. But that, this was a few years and, ago. And to store old shows, like Cranium Command. And to store, <laughs> which, which <laughs> fortunately fit exactly the in the spot, yeah. <laughs> That's right. But I have one more question for you, Gary, before you have to leave us, because unfortunately Gary has to get off and go ride in the sunset onto his next adventure. But um, Gary, it's a new setting, yes. <laughs> yeah. But uh, the new Disney movie Inside Out is going to be coming out, and I feel it's very similar to what Cranium Command is. So, do you guys think that there might be a possibility that if that film Inside Out does very well, that we may see an attraction or maybe a revamp of Cranium Command? Well, I sure think it would be fun. And I, it's funny, somewhere I had read a quote saying it was the kind of story you could never do in live action. That's why you should do it in animation. And I sort of laughed because I went, 
we totally did it in live action and in <laughs> animatronics and animation and everything else. Right. We like mixed every single media and put a live audience through that experience. So, uh, yeah. but I'm sure that what they're doing with it is completely unique to animation. So I totally applaud that. But I thought, you know, it's uh, it, we we really did a pretty crazy immersive thing at the time, and I so loved the 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 times, Gary, when. We were all together and and working on the story together during that crazy time because I because it, it had happened where none of us even saw that coming. It, it like you said, it had an opening day and they wanted a brand new, fresh take on it, and suddenly it just landed on my plate. So like rounded out of up. Nowhere. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, it was on it was on opening day where I had four shows opening at Disney MGM Studios, and on the op- opening night, two of them landed on my plate, the uh, which were. I had no idea about until that night. So it was the Indiana Jones Stunt Spectacular and Cranium Command. And the first thing was just look at, at the old version, tell us what's wrong, tell us what you do. And the very next thing, I was on a conference call. So I, I sat and looked at it, but I was then put on a conference call with Katzenberg and Eisner and Schneider and Marty Sklar and I think Tom Fitzgerald. And, and they said, okay, what's your report? And I said, well, you know, I think it can be written in a way that's much more hiding the messaging in the adventure and the storytelling. So it doesn't feel patronizing. We want to avoid that. So I, I like revamp well, the, 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 whole, the, the whole thing was it was the whole thing was was originally like written and conceived by Metropolitan Life. They were the sponsors of, of the yeah. uh, of, of the of the attraction, and they're not known for entertainment or comedy. Yeah. <laughs> and and, so, and and the live action had been shot, and it only happened in the eyes to illustrate a point, and then the eyes shut off, and the eyes weren't even active until the next story point they were the saying. Yeah. Yeah. So so I said st- number two would be uh, leave the eyes on all the time. So it's like you're on a ride, point of view ride, and because you can't, because an important message about dealing with stress is you can't close your eyes and decide what to do. If you're faced with away. a bully or whatever, you got to deal with it right then. So keep the, the argument between the different body parts happening while the eyes never close. You just see through the eyes all the time. So they went, okay. That was cool. part of the fun, yeah. And then the third they, thing what, is it was they all... Have, like steam vents and, yeah. Well, they, they had planned to have um, all of the all of the interior uh, body parts done in animation. So I said, well, my twist on that would be let's, let's totally turn people's expectation on their heads and instead of having an animated character to represent left brain and right brain, then hadn't, and the animated character is kind of like Charles Grodin or like John Lovitz, let's have Grodin and Lovitz literally in crazy sort of Monty Python-esque sets and do it in live action so people would be much more surprised. So anyway, they said yes to those three things. And then we all dove together, and, and I loved when we were working together and you guys were being so crazy inventive on storyboarding and story ideas. And then, and then we had to do a fork in the road where you guys went off and just were dedicated to doing that insanely wonderful pre-show, and I just went off to do everything that happened inside the main theater with all <laughs> the did, live action. And you did everything else. <laughs> <laughs> the crazy stuff um, inside the theater. But it was such a wonderful thing since we all huddled and created together, then... I can remember. Guests. I can remember when we we would we were um, over in the animation building uh, doing doing the pre-show stuff, doing the animation stuff. Yep. And on occasion, we would have breaks, and we'd come running over to the sound stage, and you had these sets built up. Like, there's the heart chamber that yep. Anna Carvey and Kevin Nealon, you know, get in, and there's the 
their muscle suits hung up on hangers. And, you know, for, for, for cartoon guys, that's a big deal getting into a, into a live action set. So that was, right. that was a real kick for us. But it, wasn't it fun how it all blended in the end? All the different styles. And I love that you guys in the pre-show blended photographs and stop motion into traditional animation and air, sort of all styles just merging. So when you got in the, in the main theater and you were seeing live action. It still kind of worked, yeah. Yeah, everything sort of blended together. And it's worked, so. The thing is, that, we, that wasn't actually intentional that we did it that way. I mean, it, it was like the happy accident that, you know, <laughs> we, 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 we did that just like out of, you know, just, okay. I think Brian McEntee was, was our art director then. And he was, he was, uh, Brilliant. Um, yeah. Well, he was going for like the Terry Gilliam look, you know? Yeah. Yep. And, and then, but it worked with what you guys are doing. And I, you know, I joked that it was, that it wasn't on purpose, but Brian probably did do it on purpose. So, right. I mean, for, for Kirk and I, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, whatever. But uh, <laughs> <And> <laughs> Brian's you, a lot smarter than us. So. And Gary, did you know this? Did you know that, um, and I, I, I put it on my website, that uh, to me, the best review that our whole team got for that show was Carl Sagan mentioned us in the Demon Haunted World book. I did not know this. Did you know that? It's, I, no. I have the quote up. I, is it okay if I uh, yeah, read the absolutely. quote, Tammy? Yeah, yeah. Somebody alerted me to it. A family member called me and said, your show is in, in Demon Haunted World. So they gave me the page number. I looked it up, and the quote is, he says, the problems in public education and science and other subjects run so deep that it's easy to despair and conclude that they can never be fixed. And yet, there are institutions hidden away in big cities and small towns that provide reason for hope, places that strike the spark, awaken slumbering curiosities, and ignite the scientist that lives in us all. And then he continues with about six examples, and here's one of them. Seated in the theater, you find yourself inside the head of an 11-year-old boy. You look out through his eyes. You encounter his typical day crushes, bullies, authoritarian adults, crushes on girls. You hear the voice inside his head. You witness his neurological and hormonal responses to his social environment. And you get to wonder how you work on the inside. So he cited that show as one of the sparks of inspiration that gives you I'll hope that it, that it can all work somehow. So that the fact that we wound up in his list of like half a dozen things that gave him hope, um, I just thought was Carl amazing. Sagan, that's a big deal, yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, that's, that's, so that's go a big look deal. it up and yeah, Demon Haunted World, look it up. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Gary. I know, again, you have to go off to the sunset, but we really appreciate you coming on and I hope it was a great surprise, Jerry. It was not only a treat to work together and to have you guys take on the pre-show and do such a fantastic job, but I, I know that opened the door to you guys doing Beauty and the Beast, which was amazing. Yeah, so. it, 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 it didn't hurt none, that's, that's for sure. So, <laughs> yeah. and it, it was, you know, Jerry, Jerry was a great boss and a, and a great uh, collaborator. So um, he, he made it not like work. He made it, he made it more fun. <laughs> So now we can talk a little bit about the beginning stages of developing this tr attraction because we touched upon that with Gary. Right. You were given the project very last minute along with Indiana Jones Stunt Spectacular, which we talked about on the first episode as you helped fix that as well. Were you just working on all the casting as well and, and the set designs and script? Yeah, the um, they basically were, you know, had this opening day and wanted a completely new take on how the story would be told and how it would be done. So 
You know, I, I mentioned when I was talking to you and Gary about the conference call where I hit, like, rewrite it so it's not patronizing, and it's hidden in the, a fantastic adventure. Um, keep the eyes open all the time so you feel like you're on a ride instead of just having them op- only open to, uh, to show you certain lessons. And um, to cast all the body parts in live action in crazy sets, the sort of Terry Gilliam kind of, kind of approach. And so those three things that when all the executives said, yes, go do it, um, there was much less schedule left, but all that had to start halfway through the normal production. So it was back to the building blocks of index cards for storytelling, becoming dialogue, becoming script along with storyboards, and then Bill Matthews was a, a wonderful production designer that I had worked with in live action, and he he did amazing personal art on the side, and so I knew he was the right guy to be capable of doing stuff that was live action, but wildly whimsical and expressive of a stylized take on, on the, how your body works. And so, you know, we started that, that whole process of casting, design, story, as if it was day one, just, just with the basic premise of this is about, um, you know, teaching you fun lessons about dealing with stress. And, um, and with an amazing theater that there had been years of development on this one-of-a-kind theater. So we, we knew we had a venue that was spectacular, and we needed a show that was wildly fun to fit in that spectacular theater. And, but it really was halfway through the schedule, like starting, uh, was, it was day one for all of us who, who ultimately put the show on its feet. I just want to remind listeners that we will be reviewing some spoilers and some plots uh-oh. So, so I know, whoa, whoa there. <laughs> and I know the attraction's not there anymore, and I know some of you have never gotten the chance to see it at the parks. So if you'd like to take a look on YouTube, it is definitely there. It's a 20-minute show. It's great to watch. So I would check that out and pause this interview and then come back, and we'll see you in a little bit. But let's continue on and talk about the amazing all-star cast that you had. You had John Lovitz as the right brain. Yeah, George Went as the stomach, Charles Grodin as the left brain, and many others. Were they all the first choices to play these characters in the very beginning when you were outlining everything? It sounded like you mentioned that they were. Yes, they were. And it was, you know, we had already talked about them as types. You know, it'd be great to get an anime character that's sort of like John Lovitz. And it was like, well, why don't we just get John Lovitz? <laughs> and I had already worked with him and thought he was amazing and, and fun and, and really creative. So um, so anyway, when, you know, the, the, as, as soon as the, uh, the executives bought into that as an approach, then the casting became very direct and fun where you'd say, well, it's just, just Carl, Charles Grodin. Not, get, not do an animated character sort of like Charles Grodin. Let's just get Charles. And uh, Dana Carvey and Kevin Nealon playing the right and left ventricles of the heart. <laughs> so you, the, uh, they, and at the time, they were doing the whole uh, you know, uh, uh, muscle head guys, the sort of Arnold Schwarzenegger types. We are up and pumping, you know. <laughs> we will pump you up. You know, they were... They, it, we're doing reoccurring characters uh, on Saturday Night Live. So we said, hey, come out and do the same thing, but be the right and left ventricles of the heart, you know, pumping the body. And, uh, yeah, George Went played Appetite, and Bobcat Goldthwaite was the adrenal glands, which was rather perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Freaking out whenever there was a, a fight-or-flight situation. Um, and we had Corey Burton do General Knowledge. Woohoo! Go Corey! Yeah, he was it's just fantastic. And um, <clears throat> I love his line when he says, what do you think you are in Disney World? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and um, 
then just uh, you know some terrific unknowns too. We had uh, we had Scott Curtis and we had uh, her name was Na- Natalie, Natalie Gregory Gregory yeah. um, <laughs> as the girl that he falls in love with. Casting the boy to play the main character was really interesting because they had to have the unique talents of being able to to sort of uh, choreograph their body with the camera that was supposed to be their head. So, um, so for instance, for every, every kid that came through to audition, I had a plate of food sitting on a table with uh, like strawberries and a fork. And I'd say, okay, the camera is your head. So you have to tuck it and let it be over your shoulders and tilt your head sideways. And as we go over to the table and sit down, you have to put your arms out to be in the view of the camera. And then with the fork, bring the straw to the camera, not your own mouth, because you have to be feeding. So just under the lens would be where the mouth is. So we went through all this choreography of, of getting to the table, eating, and then going to look in a mirror. And so for that, we had to have a, a point for the camera to, to wind up at for a look in the mirror and a separate point for the kid to lean into to be in the the exact right reflection point. And we had to go, okay, lean in, pause, lean out together. So it was a matter of the camera and the kid always being in sync. And I just thought, boy, that's, that's the main task that this kid will have. And so I didn't know if I was going to find somebody who would be the right face for it and the right choreographer to deal with all of that sort of craziness uh, during the shoot. There's a lot of stress on that person because when if they – make the take work or blow the take, um, it's a major deal because we had long, long single shots. So, you know, the kid had to be really good at that and have confidence in it. But I had no idea if that same kid would be good with the voice. I had no idea whether they'd be a good actor or a bad actor or have like a squeaky voice or a great voice. But anyway, it just so happened that he had everything. It just was was wonderfully all in one package where he had a great voice, cute face, could do all the choreography so we lucked out there and then with uh with natalie who he uh gets the crush on and has the interaction with um we then had to do the kind of thing where we'd say okay now the camera is is the the boy's eyes and so whenever you glance right into the lens you're glancing at the boy so you know we would do things like sitting next to each other in class and have the camera sneak a, sneak a peek at her and she looks right at him and he looks away so you get the sort of little emotional interaction between the two and so you know we found that she was great at that skill too so that that was really fun right away to get the 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 pair that would really do the the key interaction to make this story come alive and then um you know the first part of our shoot was going out and doing all of that point of view stuff everything from dream state waking up in bed you know hitting the alarm so it stops uh, quickly putting clothes on, looking in the mirror, running down the stairs to breakfast, seeing that the school bus is going to leave without you, running out to try to get it, all, all of that stuff, all the way through the end of the day, um, in a whole bunch of long single shots that were very challenging to get. Um, so for the crew, you had long stretches where everybody had to stay out of sight as the camera had a lot of freedom to look around. And you had to have the main actors that were supposed to be in the shot, like quickly ducking in and out of sight where they were supposed to be. And then we also had the challenge of having things that needed to appear to be connected that weren't in real life. So, for instance, when you come out of the principal's office and you turn to the right to head down the hallway where he then meets the girl at the end of the film, um, there actually was no hallway at the real principal's office. There was just a wall. So... 
and we weren't using digital effects back then. So we did very simple techniques, but we're very careful, very methodical about them. Uh, so when we came out, we painted the wall outside of the, the principal's office uh, a certain color. And then we found a hallway all the way across town at, at a school that had hallway and lockers. And we painted a blank wall there the same color. And then we put the same chair, the same potted plant, the same picture on the wall at both places, lit them the same. And as we came out of the principal's office, we, we saw that and then did a gentle pan away from it, just enough to get some motion blur. And then we went all the way across town, set up in the school, and started the shot with the same blur across the same wall and the chair and the potted plant and the picture, just enough to get some motion blur, and then continue down the hallway. And all we had to do was find the golden frame in the editing room and stick those two shots together, and you just believed that it was one shot. That, so we had to do all of that to get what you see through the eyes, and that was the whole first part of the shoot. And then the second part was building the crazy sets for the right brain, left brain, uh, appetite, all the rest of the body parts to appear in. And, then, uh, and during the time that we were building those sets and after we got the uh, point of view footage, uh, Rebecca and I had our first child. So we had our newborn baby on, on the crazy sets. <laughs> but so on the right brain uh, carousel, he got to take a little ride. So that was, that was awesome when he was just a tiny little baby. And um, so, yeah, that, <laughs> sort of spending a few nights in the hospital uh, with the newborn while, while juggling that show was, uh, was a, a, a fun and crazy part of the adventure. Um, but then we, then we filmed all the parts where it was the body parts discussing what was happening out through the eyes. So I had to have the part that was done out through the eyes already shot and edited and playing back on the set. So while I was directing Charles Grodin, for instance, I had to have the monitor showing me what was going on through the eyes so that I could cue him when he should be seeing and reacting to certain things. So he was just looking into the camera and he was dealing with the normal sort of acting but he was depending on me to cue him when certain things were going on. And I was getting that from looking at a little monitor that was playing back all the eyes point of view. So it was a little schizophrenic. You had to like one eye was looking at playback, one eye was looking at the actor, and you were trying to get everything synced up. And um, so, it, so it was a, a crazy sort of two-part uh, shoot. And then when we put all of them together, it wound up being you know eight, eight screens, counting the little monitor screens, two figures... And also, so imagine that sort of that tapestry. Then you had to have the actors know when the animatronic figures in the room were talking to them and where to look. So um, that was another part of the puzzle. Is when Buzzy was talking, they had to look at where Buzzy would be, and when the hypothalamus was talking, you know, they had, everybody had to have the right viewpoint for that. And of course, that didn't exist when we were shooting, so that had to be imagined. So. Here's another just crazy uh, little sort of very analog old school solution that, that we found for it is I, on a TV at home, I just played back the point of view through the eyes and I had a little tiny figure on the end of a pencil eraser that represented Buzzy and I shot all of that with a video camera and I just moved him with my hand back and forth where Buzzy's big... Uh, uh, arm in the theater would swing back and forth so I'd go okay the camera's moving to the right let's make him swing left so it seems like this centrifugal force you know and but I just did that with a little guy on the end of a pencil eraser 
and shot it with a home video camera. And then we took that to the theater and we programmed the big big items in the theater just following that little home video. Uh, so it was it was a whole bunch of really interesting layers of just trying to juggle what it would become in your head. And um, and when it all came together, what do you know? It's kind of all every, all the pieces fit and people seem to be looking the right directions and stuff. And we mocked up as much of that as we could in Glendale at Imagineering when we were preparing before we went out there. But, of course, we never had the real Buzzy or a hypothalamus there. So every time we'd have a... Uh, you know, a show for Marty Sklar and Jeffrey and, and Tom and all the different people. Um, I remember Jeffrey would turn over and tap me every time Buzzy would talk, say his first dialogue. He's like, who's talking? Like, oh, that's the animatronic figure in the room. You, you know, you can't see him now, but he'll be in the theater. Trust me. He's like, okay. <laughs> and then we'd meet a few days later and he'd see another version of the, of the show, something that we'd tweaked. And it would happen again. He's like, who's talking? Oh, that's Buzzy. He's an animatronic figure. He's going to be in the room. He's like, well, I'm, I'm glad you know what you're doing. <laughs> so... <laughs> Finally, when they saw it in the theater, I was like, oh, okay, there he is. It makes sense. So uh, it's, it was a, a, a complex tapestry. And, and one thing I thought that was really interesting evidence of the complexity for, for everybody that tackled that was um, my first assistant director, Michael Haney, he had been with me during that process and was just great at juggling the complexity. But he came in the day before we started to shoot, and he said, I finally understand how it all it's going to work. <laughs> I said, "Well, that's good, Michael, because we're shooting tomorrow." <laughs> so, but he he uh, then he was he was great at juggling all of that. But his next gig was Terminator Two. He called me from there and he said, "Guess what? Crane in Command prepped me for T two. He said it's like same level of complexity, dude. Wow. So he's like, that was my prep. This is my you know uh, my next." Next gig, I feel right at home here on the set because, you know, we, we went through something like this. So I, but I, and we kept in touch over the years. And recently, he really helped me find somebody in a pinch on a, on a live action film I was doing out in, on the East Coast. And um, he's just remained a, a, a great buddy. But he's just done nothing but giant, a, you know, A-list pictures and um, over his career. But he felt like the launching pad into that world was, uh, was Cranium Command. And he did a great job. Uh, so the sets in the film, we were talking about this a little bit earlier, are all for working body parts and are very intricate, even after only seeing them for a couple seconds because the scenes go by so quickly, so we don't get to see the entirety of the set. Were there several sound stages used for the film or just one and then a couple of separate rooms that were all attached to one another? Well, uh, we had different pieces of the set uh, spread around a big, a big soundstage. Um, so we'd move from one part of the soundstage to the other and then just keep our point of view very focused on the specific set. Um, so yeah, at any one time in the big soundstage, you could look around and see, and see all the different parts. Um, but, it, you know, for instance, one that was, a, again, I thought a wonderful solution from Bill Matthews, our production designer, was uh, Left Brain, where Grodin sat. He did all these uh, black and white squares, cubes, and and built them out of wood. Everything was just kept black and white. Groden's outfit was also black and white, and and the shoulders of his jacket were made more square than normal, so that he would kind of seem like he fit in the in the set of blocks. And um and his little desk could just move on a track to and from camera, but it was it was very much uh, very rigid. It was just a forward strict forward movement and strict backward movement. 
and different symbols on the, on the uh, cubes that were around him. And they could all extrude into the space and then go out of the space. All of that, though, was run by people using their hands behind the set to push things out and in on cue. So if you looked at the outside of that set, it was just a hive of people that all had their marks. And inside, uh, you know, you just saw the wonderful Rubik's Cube moving chamber that could turn into any sort of shape that was needed. Um, but uh, during the filming, you know, it was uh, a lot of little sliding sounds and and people just sort of breathing as they're trying to do their moves right and everything. But uh, but very fun. And then, the you know, the things like ex- exploding uh, vapor into the space and sparks and all that stuff, all that was done very analog just with, uh, with things happening right there on the set. Um, but it wound up having this really fanciful look to it, but it happened in a very sort of theater way, almost like stage play, where mm-hmm. everything was really built and the actor was right there and it all really happened in front of your eyes. The camera just documented it. We didn't go back and add a bunch of special effects. And um, so Bill Matthews in production design just really, really, I think, found a, a way to maximize you know, working with actual materials and the limitations of being on a soundstage without the help of effects, but then maximizing the the sense of wonder and, and the fanciful nature, the fantastic nature of everything. I'm just guessing that the cast must have had a lot of fun playing on those sets. Are there any funny stories you have? Well, they did, although, although John Lovitz was... Uh, he was a little bit, uh, got a little motion sickness. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah, because he, he was on these moving um, wheels. So there were rings that he was walking on where, where there was an, uh, multiple rings that were spinning under his feet, right? Mm-hmm. So he'd stand on it and it would, one would spin to the right, another one would spin to the left. And he, as he'd step from one to the other, it would suddenly move him the opposite direction. So he could walk towards you and be suddenly pulled to the left and walk forward and pulled to the right. And so he's like, oh, man, I'm getting a little seasick here. It's like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> How many more takes do we have? I'm feeling queasy, you know. Um, and, and then above him, just off camera view, we had a similar set of rings that were moving opposing directions with things hanging down into view. So we had things coming up from the bottom and hanging down from the top moving all different directions. So for him, it was a very disorienting experience. And he was a real trooper with it, but he was a little bit, like, queasy at times. We had to, like, pause a couple of times to let him sort of get his bearings again. When he'd step off of the rings onto the soundstage, he'd sort of have, uh, you know, sea legs for a while, like he stepped off a ship. But now let's talk a little bit about a new attraction that you're working on. I'm very excited because you were posting it about it on Facebook, and it's now officially being announced, which is fantastic because I know it was under wraps for a little bit. So it's called the Marvel Experience. Can you tell us a little bit more about what the Marvel Experience is without giving too much away? Because I know they're still in the process of creating it. Right. Well, I um, I, I have to be careful about how much I say at this point they they shot behind the scenes stuff they shot interview stuff with me and a bunch of other team members and I know they're going to be putting things out in a in a pretty choreographed way and uh, so I'm not sure how much I can say about it except that it's wildly wonderfully next gen and adventurous and it's 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 just gonna blow people's minds and and I'm I'm so happy to be involved with it so, uh, but I, I, I should really probably wait until we get a little further towards opening day and sort of 
see which pieces they want to roll out first and how they want to tease people. And then there will be a day, Tammy, when I can come on and just totally, we can have a whole episode about it. Yes, and probably <laughs> when, it's, when it's had the first, you know, it's, it's reached the first city and is in front of the public and uh, people are experiencing it. And, and then we can sit down and do a whole show about it. And, and it will be, it'll be a wonderful show. But uh, I'm sorry to play coy. It's but, okay. Uh, no, I, under, I completely, now this is coming out in 2016, right? Or when are we going to expect this? Or is that oh, on the as well? Oh, no, 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 no. It's, um, uh, 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 it, we, we are heading towards a, an, an intended opening by the end of this year. <laughs> That's great. I'm excited. So, I mean, I mean, in, in, in a normal world, um, 2015 or 2016 uh, might be in the cards, but we have pedal to the metal. <laughs> we this are great. We are all all cylinders. Well, we can confirm here in the Tierra Talk Show that we do have Corey Burton is our Cranium Command and Back to Neverland connection to the Marvel experience. Yes. So that is something we can confirm. <laughs> yes, Corey Woo-hoo! Burton does a wonderful cameo, and he he, he totally did me a favor coming in and doing a sneaking in a little cameo in which he um he gives the little a113 code that um has been sort of our little hello back and forth to each other the the a113 cal arts crowd to each other and um so Corey does a little cameo where he sneaks in and does the a113 code so you have to listen for that as you go through the marvel experience it's a it's a fun little thing and Corey totally did me a favor to come in and do that cameo i think buzzy would be proud <laughs> yes yes indeed and general knowledge would yes be. and general knowledge yes <laughs> i always wondered i always wondered what would happen to buzzy after they got through that great day i think it, it turned out very well towards the end i think i hope general knowledge promoted buzzy That's yeah i i un- undoubtedly so on the Tierra Talk Show, we always ask our guests three fabulous questions. We call them the Fab Three questions. They're the Everybody Donald, that. yeah, I know. <laughs> They're the Donald, Goofy, and Mickey questions. So let's start with the Donald one. As okay. a child, what Disney film would you like to watch over and over again? Oh gosh, ah, uh, different phases. But I, I got mesmerized by Fantasia for a while, and. Uh, like rites of spring and the dinosaurs and everything and then i got totally mesmerized by bambi and then i got mesmerized by pinocchio and for each one of those it was a could watch it over and over kind of experience so uh i uh i guess first one would be just how spectacularly different fantasia was and our goofy one what disney character do you think would be your best friend if you met them in person I'd like to think the genie from Aladdin. <laughs> yes, that would be fantastic. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Why, what do you want today, Jerry? And, uh, and then I could just make a wish. <laughs> I love your Robin Williams impression. It is spot on. <laughs> and your John Lovitz. Now you just need to do like impressions. That's right. We need to have both of them. Have them talking to each other. <laughs> I certainly. So, genie, what's on your mind? Well, what are you talking about? Now, which character are you? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm a couple of characters. I'm in the Brave Little Toaster, but I'm also in, uh, in Cranium Command. Oh, I was, I was born in Back to Neverland. Something Yay! like that. <laughs> and now our Mickey question. If I asked you to name any Disney song at this very moment, what immediately comes to mind? When You Wish Upon a Star is the first thing that comes to mind, but close runner-up is A Dream is a Wish Your Heart Makes. We actually had a discussion about that when we were doing... Um, Back to Neverland, 
about what would be the final emotion you would take out when you went through the whole experience and you saw sort of the, that final film that showed great moments from, uh, from animation, great emotional moments. And we chose uh, Dream is a Wish Your Heart Makes, you know, no matter how your heart is grieving, if you keep on believing the dream that you wish will come true, that really seemed like the sort of the angst of that, the sort of the, the, the heartache of going through troubles but keeping your eye on dreams and, and uh, that, that seemed to be even a little more fulfilling for us uh, as we were trying to, to sum up what it meant to us as a team. Uh, even then, uh, when you wish upon a star, it's great, but dream as you wish your heart makes um, with the little image of uh, Dumbo and his mom. <laughs> was uh, just the, the sort of bittersweet wonderfulness of that uh, just made it pop through a little bit more. It was great chatting with you again, Jerry. Thank you for coming on the first anniversary of the Tierra Talk Show. Maybe we should just do this every year where you come on for the second anniversary, make it a reoccurring event. Yeah. <laughs> I feel a live show is in the cards for the future. What do you think? Right. Our listeners love the interaction with asking questions. We can also ask them to ask on the YouTube comments below. If you guys right. are listening to this interview right now, you can go right below the interview, uh, below the in more info section, and you can type a comment, ask any questions you have for Jerry, and he'll be sure to answer them either on YouTube or maybe for a live show or for the next episode. Oh, that'd be cool. Because I, I, I'm always curious about what people are interested in, what they're particularly focused on, what they have questions about. Um, that That's is sort of eye-opening for me too it's uh you never quite know what people will notice uh so that's fun for me and also listeners be sure to check out jerry's website jerryrees.com so that's j-e-r-r-y-r-e-e-s.com and you can see more behind the scenes photos of back to the neverland and of other projects he's worked on as well so thank you again for coming on the show and I guess Absolutely. we can still fly out here back to Neverland <laughs> and then see right. if we can find Buzzy out there. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Tammy. I really appreciate it. And, and what a, uh, an event, uh, the one-year anniversary. I'm so flattered. Thank you. Hey, you gold bricks. This ain't a spectator sport. Where do you think you are, Disney World?